The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Ultimately, I think what the this new CTO announcement is all about is essentially an acknowledgement that that broader strategic vision either wasn't there or hadn't been implemented properly. And hopefully this will right the ship in that regard. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 12th, 2021. Last week, CI Director William Burns issued a statement with a number of organizational changes and other initiatives regarding the CIA. Most media attention was drawn to the creation of a new China Mission Center, but there were several new initiatives on the technology front that also warrant attention. He talked about a new Technology Fellows Program. He talked about a new Transnational and Technology Mission Center. He talked about a new Chief Technology Officer and a corporate board devoted to technology issues. It sure would be nice if we had someone who worked in a senior role in the intelligence community on emerging technology issues, who also has experience in other parts of the government, and also has experience in Silicon Valley with AI startups, who also happens to be a think tank expert now on emerging technology and national security issues. We have just such a person. I sat down in the virtual jungle studio with Martin Rasser, who used to serve as a senior intelligence officer and analyst at CIA on emerging technology and tech innovation issues, He also served as a senior advisor in the office of the Secretary of Defense, as a director at a venture-backed AI startup in Silicon Valley, and he is now at the Center for a New American Security as a senior fellow and director of the Technology and National Security Program. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 12th, Martin Rasser on CIA and Emerging Technology. So last week, CIA Director Burns issued a statement with quite a few different moving parts, and and I do want to get to to some of those. Most of the media attention was focused on things like the new China Mission Center and how Iran and North Korea would be addressed within the organizational structure. But there were a whole lot of other issues that got less attention related to technology. And in his statement, Director Burns teed those up with this phrase that I'm really curious to get your take on, what it's referring to. He said, to respond more quickly to technological threats and opportunities, we are going to dot, dot, dot. And then he went on to to list several initiatives. Before we get to those initiatives, I want to hear you, Martin, talk about 
what those technological threats and opportunities are. What has been evolving in the national security and intelligence space in the last few years that is driving this this set of initiatives from CIA to address threats and opportunities around technology? Sure, David. Well, it's really the recognition that this strategic competition that we're in has technology at the center, right? Matters of technology policy are fundamentally important to U.S. national security and economic security. And uh, the CIA's announcement is uh, is a reflection of that. And it's a uh, an effort to make the agency as a whole more responsive to this to this new reality that we're facing. It's mm-hmm. a, a competition very much unlike any that the United States has faced in many, many decades. It's very different than the Cold War with the Soviet Union, for example. So these types of changes that that Director Burns is is putting forward are a direct response to how our policymakers believe the the best way forward is for how the United States should address this. And if you think of the landscape, you know, it's very vast, right? We're talking biotechnology, we're talking artificial intelligence, facial recognition, biometrics, quantum computing, a whole host of other technology areas that are just fundamentally important to economic activity, but also how our military defends the country and our interests and and how we engage with our allies and partners and respond to rising powers such as China and and other pretty capable technology actors such as Russia for example it's interesting that that you frame it that way because to me thinking about this there there are parallels before and let's say it's you know whether the Soviet Union is developing you know this type of thermonuclear device that that's a collection problem it's a it's a technology problem that has national security implications that that is inherently hard to collect on because it is so secret and so well protected but in this case so many of the things you just mentioned like biometrics and facial recognition and quantum computing in themselves pose problems for intelligence collection so it's not only a hard target to collect on but the very technologies that are hard to collect on make it harder for the intelligence operatives to do their business. So I'm wondering if we could talk through both ends of that, the collection and the analysis. Let's, let's talk about the collection first. Pick any of these or talk about them generally, whichever you prefer. But how do these advanced emerging technologies threaten the intelligence enterprise and its ability to deliver information and insight to the policy community? Well, if you think about, you know, just going about your day to day, right? You walk down the street, there's cameras everywhere. People have, you know, the ring doorbells, there's cameras on ATMs, there's traffic cameras. You cannot go around town without being seen. And most of the time, you don't even notice it's happening. Now, here in the United States, you know, coverage is still fairly light. But if you compare that to cities like London or Beijing, you're probably being watched almost every second right. that you're walking around town. You add uh, facial recognition technologies, biometrics, gait analysis, where you can actually identify people by how they walk, how they move. And 
AI techniques to be able to analyze all that information, you can start figuring out a person's whereabouts anywhere in, in the country quite easily. Add in you know, any activity that you have online using your computer, using your phone. And of course, your phone in and of itself is a beacon, right? It's constantly triangulating between cell towers. If you merge all this information together, you can learn a remarkable amount about a person's whereabouts, their habits, how they go to and from work, where they live, of course, and, and who they interact with. And as an intelligence officer in the field, that poses tremendous problems, not just for the officer itself, but also the sources that the officer is meeting with. And I think what we are seeing now is we have to have a fundamental rethink of tradecraft, how you collect information from human sources in the field, because it's so much more difficult now. And presumably, that's what a whole lot of these initiatives that we'll be talking about are, are going to get at, which is rethinking tradecraft in this era of advanced technological surveillance and other things that make it difficult to collect. But there is the other side too, which is the analytic side. So with you, with your experience, you can talk especially well to how is it that analysts are going to piece together the best insights possible for policymakers on these emerging technologies when the very time frame of the collection and analysis cycle means that they may not keep up with the technology, even if they are collecting on it in a relatively robust way. How are these emerging technologies so difficult for analysts to get their hands around? Well, one of the first problems is there's just tremendous amount of change happening very quickly. It's just extremely difficult to stay on top of all the developments taking place in you know, just a vast array of very important technology areas just in artificial intelligence alone, keeping tabs of all the breakthroughs in deep learning and neural networks, it's very, very challenging. On top of that, one of the, the big problems now is that a lot of these breakthroughs are taking place in the private sector. And that poses some specific challenges to finding out what is going on because these companies treat this as proprietary information, of course. And if you want to learn what foreign companies are doing in certain fields, that becomes hard to figure out. Then you have government labs working on issues. Uh, they have their own precautions. And in order for an American intelligence analyst to stay smart on an issue, ideally you would engage with U.S. scientists and engineers. But as an intelligence officer, and rightfully so, there's some specific hurdles in order to engage with U.S. citizens on these issues. So it becomes quite challenging for a CIA officer, for example, to be fully up to speed on, on the latest and greatest in any given issue, especially once you're working inside government. Your knowledge base, if you are trained as a scientist, as an engineer, that knowledge becomes stale quite quickly. And, and it's difficult to really stay at the, the cutting edge of, of developments in any given field once you're working in a classified environment like that. And I would say from my own experience, and let me know if this tracks with yours, that talking to the analysts in the Directorate of Intelligence, then the Directorate of Analysis, talking to the engineers and scientists in the Directorate of Science and Technology, 
and the the folks working in the digital innovation area. I mean, there there are true experts, world class experts working within the CIA on these topics. But what's going on in the private sector is so focused on specific products and developments that it would be useful to have more knowledge from from U.S. companies about what they're working on, about the obstacles, even about parallel areas of research that would give clues to collectors what kind of access we have to learn more what the Chinese, the Russians, and others are doing in these very specific areas. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the people that I worked with when I was at at the CIA, you know, the smartest people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And to your point, the folks in the Directorate of Science and Technology, they truly are world class. But yeah, you raised the the point that so many of these breakthroughs are taking place in the private sector. And unlike most of the technologies of concern during the Cold War, for example, we're primarily military technologies, but so much of what matters now truly is dual use, right? If you think of all the things you can do with artificial intelligence, with quantum computing, synthetic biology, it's a lot of good, a lot of very benign economic activity that you can have with that, but you can also use it for ill. And the fact that there is no clear dividing line anymore between a military end use or some other type of use of a technology that isn't mm-hmm. in the national security interests of the United States makes it much more difficult to learn about all those technology capabilities. But it also makes it difficult from a policy standpoint on ensuring that nefarious uses of technology can actually be avoided. Putting export controls on software, for example, it's not feasible, right? And so the challenge, I think, both for intelligence analysts and for policymakers is then to think about what leverage does the United States have in a lot of these areas and what should we be on the lookout for in developments in foreign countries that can tip us off to research directions that certain actors are taking so that we can anticipate better certain technology surprises, at least try to mitigate them to an extent that we can take responsible action, take mitigating action in advance. And that's that's going to be a tremendous challenge. And I think overall for analysts of technology and how technologies are being used by competitors and adversaries of the United States, it's going to change the way people approach intelligence analysis and the types of recommendations they can put forward to policymakers. All right. With that in mind, let's move to Director Burns' actual initiatives that he announced in this statement last week. Again, with the preamble here that it's in order to respond more quickly to technological threats and opportunities, he said, first, we're going to establish the position of chief technology officer who will ensure we have an integrated strategy on everything we are doing on the tech front. So why hasn't this been done already? I know we have a digital innovation chief within the CIA structure, but why hasn't there been a chief technology officer and what is the advantage of having one now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my take on this is that this is essentially an admission that the 
Directorate of Digital Innovation didn't quite pan out the way it was originally envisioned, right? If you look at the jobs that are featured on the CIA website for for the Digital Innovation Directorate, for example, you know they're looking for developers, engineers. So it strikes me that that particular directorate has largely been functioning as a more tactical mm-hmm. and implementation type of organization. Okay. And that what's what's been missing is a more strategic vision for how the agency sh- should be using technologies. So as long as the new chief technology officer is in fact empowered to set that strategy and has the organizational backing in order to make tough decisions, then I could see that that new CTO being a very effective player within the larger bureaucracy. How exactly that interaction with the digital innovation directorate will be, you know, time will tell. But ultimately, I think what the this new CTO announcement is all about is essentially an acknowledgement that that broader strategic vision either wasn't there or hadn't been implemented properly. And hopefully this will right the ship in that regard. Yeah, you're right. We, we don't get a lot of details on the interaction of this new chief technology officer with the, the rest of the CIA bureaucracy. But, but we do get a hint in the second thing that Burns announced, which is that the CTO will also chair a new technology corporate board to, in his words, drive faster adoption of outside technologies inside CIA. Now, part of me thinks that this board is good, right? You create you create a new corporate board with a mission to actually get these tech developments in inside the the CIA fence earlier, faster, better. On the other hand, there's still that balance which has always been there between quick new technology and security. And how do you how do you balance that? Another set of meetings of you know, high GS rank officers doesn't necessarily solve that. So what what do you think the value is of a technology corporate board and what might it be able to do that hasn't been done yet? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, we're we're kind of reading the tea leaves here, right? Since we don't there isn't much out in uh in the public domain on this. My hunch here is that the CTO will be given a lot more authority and leeway in determining who actually sits on that corporate board. So if the new CTO actually has quite a bit of independence in determining who the decision makers are, that could help expedite the decision-making process. But just based solely on the announcement that Director Burns made, yeah, it's, it's difficult to discern exactly how this is all going to work. If it is just another talking shop, another <laughs> set of meetings, then yeah, not not much will change, unfortunately. But right. you know, I think we should be optimistic about both the announcement and the fact that these positions are being created because they have been studying these these issues quite a bit. And I'm hoping that they look to the experience of the Department of Defense in this, right? Where they set up a defense innovation board, which was actually quite successful in making some meaningful changes into how mm-hmm. DOD approaches some of these issues, such as how how they approach software acquisition now at the DIB, uh, the Defense Innovation Board, put forward some very solid recommendations on that front that are being implemented, and it is working. So if they use 
something like that as a model for how to approach this, then yeah, I, I can see the CTO having some real impact in this area. That's a really interesting idea because the CIA, traditionally, I think most people, especially after leaving the organization and working in other environments, all acknowledge that CIA has tended to be rather insular in its thinking. And having a corporate board entirely of insiders may not help unless they do explicitly learn from the experiences of other boards in similar places and perhaps try to bring in people with experience from the private sector who have come into the agency and put them on that corporate board. But another initiative he announced takes it from the leadership level and and moves it across the organization. He announced the creation of the Transnational and Technology Mission Center, or TTMC. And this is to go along with the initiative in the reorganization and so-called modernization effort some, what, five to 10 years ago now, of putting the directorates, which had usually controlled the slices of collection analysis support and other areas, and, and putting officers across the intelligence enterprise into focused mission centers on things like now China or on the Middle East. And now there will be a mission center called the Transnational and Technology Mission Center. And he did list some of the global issues that would be there, as he called them issues critical to U.S. competitiveness, including technology, economic security, climate change, and global health. What do you think of this new mission center, which actually has technology in its name? What benefit does that bring to getting at these tough collection and analytic issues that you talked about earlier? Well, the fact that it acknowledges that technology is a key area of concern is great. But you mentioned a lot of other things, right? There's this transnational aspect, climate change, global health. One concern I have is that this new mission center is one of these you know, catch-all organizations where they just try to lump in way too many focus areas into one group. And then you run the risk of just not having the right focus that you need for this. Particularly when it comes to technology, my question is, how will this mission center engage with the new China mission center? Because as I mentioned before, so right. much of this competition with China is about technology. And just by having those two topics in separate mission centers, that could create some some major issues, right? Just in terms of little turf wars with, among the, the analysts and the collectors over who should have the lead on, on any given issue. So this that's one concern that I have. The other part is, you know, of course, climate change and global health are extremely important issues. But is CIA the best place for that type of analysis? What are the, the, the unique things that CIA brings to bear on those particular topics? I think there's a good case to be made that those types of capabilities and focus areas are best left to other parts of, of the U.S. government. The CIA has tremendous capabilities, but what's the, what's the value add in an area like climate change? What, what can the CIA really do that is different from other parts of the government and provide unique insights? This is fascinating because we've, we've had a real back and forth on that over the years, right? We, we had a time not that long ago when climate change, 
wasn't considered something that the the CIA was looking at. And until COVID-19, global health issues, while yes, there were there's some people keeping an eye on it, it was not an area of concern that was seen as one of the major components of a mission center. And it seems like it's a response to events. When when DOD is focusing so much on the effects of climate change for national security, and obviously other agencies and departments in the United States government are doing so, like on every other issue, they're going to look to the CIA for the intelligence to narrow the range of uncertainty in, in terms of how it relates to international affairs and, and their policies, and a same, similar thing for global health. So it makes sense that they want that support from from CIA. But you, you raise an interesting point about it being lumped together with technology issues. And does that, in a sense, distract the management of that mission center from focusing effectively on any one of those things? Right. Well, and global health is so broad, right? If it were biosecurity, that would make more sense in my mind. Oh, because okay. yes, of course, you want to keep tabs on what foreign countries are doing when it comes to studying pathogens and biological weapons, just like the CIA has done for chemical weapons in the past as well. And then climate change, again, that's extremely broad. So are you going to have CIA analysts doing assessments on flood risks? You know, again, it's a matter of how do you use the resources that you have? I think there's a strong case to be made that the Central Intelligence Agency could use those resources on other things. And I think that's something that the uh, the intelligence oversights committees in the Congress should take a look at to see what exactly it is that these mission centers will be focusing on. Because again, if, if you go too broad, you end up just diluting what the agency brings to the table. And I think a narrower focus in a lot of these areas would make sense. And I would, again, point out how are these technology analysis efforts, how is that feeding into what the China Mission Center does and what the analysts right. working on Russia right. and Iran are doing? Because it's all interrelated. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. The congressional angle is is fascinating. I'm tentatively, and I'm just thinking out loud here, but I, I'm thinking that the oversight committees in general will will appreciate the mission center focus on technology. They may be divided for ideological reasons, perhaps on issues like climate change, but when it comes to focusing more on the technology central to U.S. national security, I think there'll be a whole lot of support for that, and perhaps support for the other initiative that Bill Burns announced relating to, to technology and personnel. He announced the establishment of a CIA technology fellows program. 
presumably to bring in experts from the tech sector for a year or two of public service at CIA before going back into industry. So talk through the challenges that in the past have been there for bringing in people from companies working on emerging technology just for a few years, not as a career change, but you know, as a perhaps a, a sabbatical from their industrial work, but as a real opening into the intelligence business. And then and then going back to industry, what have those challenges been and how can this program, if it works effectively, overcome those challenges? Well, for one, let me say I'm very excited about this initiative because I think it's extremely important that the CIA has that type of tech talent coming into the organization. That'll be a tremendous resource for the organization as a whole, as well as the broader intelligence community. And the challenges, of course, are, well, <laughs> the issue of security clearances, right? I, <laughs> uh, for one, it the process just takes extremely long, which is an, very much an impediment when you have fast-moving developments in, in the tech space. And to be fair, Martin, we, we, we have glided over something else that Director Burns said in his statement. He said, not connected directly to the CIA Technology Fellows Program, but, but he did say after that, that the CIA is working to significantly reduce the time for applicants to join CIA. So there's certainly an awareness of the problem that you mentioned. Without any details on the solutions, the idea probably is that these two things are connected, that if we want to get people to come in who have the right expertise and experience, it, it can't be years of waiting to do it. Right, exactly. You know, if those two efforts are indeed related, then that's fantastic news. And obviously, just across the board, speeding up the process makes important sense. And I think one of the, particularly for uh, for this Tech Fellows Program, is then deciding, you know, do these people coming in need the the full clearance or would a, a secret mm-hmm. clearance be more appropriate, for example? That could help expedite things as well. But then, yeah, some of the challenges, of course, is, you know, as you know, David, in order to be an effective intelligence analyst, it takes some time to to learn the tradecraft, right? Probably a couple years before you really are mm-hmm. up and running and producing sure. top quality work on a regular basis, learning the writing style, learning the, the unique you know, aspects of, of working at an organization like CIA, just learning how to navigate the bureaucracy, that, that'll take some time. But despite all that, I think these, um, these folks coming in from industry can have some real impact, right? Just in terms of bringing in new knowledge and insight. It also helps bridge that gap that there is between the U.S. government and, and the tech ecosystem in Silicon Valley, Austin, Texas, and other places. So these, these folks coming in can, you know, hopefully serve as ambassadors of sort, right? Where they help bridge that gap, help make mm-hmm. uh, our government colleagues a little smarter about how tech companies think about technology development, how they think about engaging with companies in countries like China, for example, because still a lot of this research and development, a lot of company sales are taking place in China. So they have their own perspective on what it means to engage with with a country like that. And when these people go back to their employers in, in the tech world, yeah, then they can help educate folks over there about all the good work that, that the U.S. government is doing in this area. Because there's 
I think a lot of just misunderstanding as to what each side does and just having exposure to both sides will will help bridge some of those those gaps in understanding which will be of long-term benefit. Now, you've had experience not only at CIA but in the office of the Secretary of Defense, but you've also had experience on the private sector side working at a venture-backed emerging technology startup and with investment research. And now, of course, you're in the think tank space trying to bring all this together. One thing I'm curious about is it may be fine that the CIA says, we have this technology fellows program and we will bring your people and we will give them a good experience and you'll get them back in two years with a wider perspective. But if you're Microsoft or Google or Apple and you're thinking, wait a minute, you want to take some of my people working on the cutting edge emerging technologies. You want to borrow them for a year or two where they will be interacting with people from those other companies. And then they go back to their companies. What about intellectual property? What about some of the sensitive issues that we're working on? How do we protect what we have put into these people from, in effect, diluting our shareholder value by getting that emerging technology and some of the thought behind it, giving that as seed material to people who go to other companies through this fellows program. There presumably are ways around this, but I have a hard time thinking of them. Yeah, there's certainly going to be some hurdles to executing this this tech fellow program, right? But at the same time, I think all these firms, particularly the the big ones that you mentioned, they ultimately understand the the broader purpose of this. And I think these companies will be very willing to find appropriate solutions to the issues that you raise. It's going to be much more difficult, however, for for smaller companies, startups, to be able to participate in something like this. Because for them, they don't have the luxury of sparing some of their top engineering talent for a couple of years, right? So I think we'll see most of the participants in this effort come from large corporations, perhaps some universities and research institutes, but some of the really cutting edge work that that small companies are doing, that may not be feasible to have them take part in this, at least at the outset, unless there's some type of compensation that that the CIA can come up with to make up for the fact that, yeah, they are losing very important people doing work for, for their bottom line. Would they be able to afford setting that aside for a bit. You know, I, I'm sure that their their investors would have some things to say about that. But for the larger companies, such as the ones you mentioned, Microsoft, Google, yeah, it should be quite feasible. And I think something that would actually have a lot of support from uh, from their executive teams. I also found it interesting that this CIA Technology Fellows Program comes just weeks after the announcement in the Quad framework. This is the affiliation of the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. On the sides of the summit meeting of the leaders back in late September, they announced a new Quad fellowship program for students of the Quad countries to pursue higher degrees in STEM programs, uh, presumably and primarily in the United States, among other technology initiatives. That is, this wider government national security effort of pursuing ways of leveraging technology across different organizations 
they're doing that on the international level through the Quad, just as CIA is now seeking to do that in a more robust way across United States companies and public sector in the CIA. Are these related in any way that you can tell? I mean, clearly they're not talking about bringing you know, Indian scientists into the United States to get their degrees, uh, higher degrees in STEM, and then suddenly pop into the CIA. They're not explicitly linked. But it does strike me that you've got two big fellows initiatives coming within weeks of each other. Is that showing some kind of thinking behind the scenes across the U.S. government that we need to reimagine the way that we handle technology and national security? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, ideas like this have been floating around for some time, right? There's been a lot of focus, for example, on the Department of Defense and bringing in AI talent, for example. And if you look at what the Biden administration has done so far on matters of tech policy, some interesting bilateral agreements with Japan and South Korea, for example, and a lot of work that's gone into the quad that you mentioned, right? There's a critical and emerging technology working group that's been doing some very important things on fostering an environment for better collaboration with like-minded countries. And the Quad Tech Fellows Program is one of them. And so I think these efforts, while not directly related, are definitely, they, they share the same roots in the sense that there's this broader recognition that human capital, you know, human talent is so fundamentally important and that we're right now just not doing a very good job at at nurturing that talent and maximizing the potential. And so I think what we're starting to see is really the the initial stages of of a rethink of how we can better employ human capital across a whole range of technology disciplines. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the United States and its allies and partners, what if one of the their great combined strengths is it's people. There's a lot of very smart, very capable people in countries like Australia, Japan, India, or European allies. And what smarter ways can we think of to create more of a, a human capital network where it's easier for talented individuals to, to move back and forth and work for a company in the United States for a few years and maybe then go to India and maybe then go to Australia. And these are the types of ideas that we're starting to put in motion now. Very small scale, but even those initial test cases, I think, could serve as a very good proof of concept for larger, more ambitious programs like this down the road. You've also written recently or co-written about how the Department of Commerce, which is not the department that normally comes to mind when people are brainstorming core national security agencies and departments, but how the Department of Commerce, which at its core addresses issues from supply chain vulnerabilities to tariffs to export controls, how the department is under-resourced and lacking significant authorities to accomplish its mission as it relates to national security matters, How could an expanded CIA focus on technology issues, which, at least in his statement, Bill Burns said was critical to U.S. competitiveness, an interesting phrase to use, how could such an expanded effort help the Department of Commerce to accomplish its mission as it overlaps with this area? 
Yeah, so the piece uh, you're referring to, David, was something that my colleague Megan Lamberth and I wrote for Politico. And it was a distillation of some policy recommendations that we put forward in a, in a report we published recently. The name of that report is uh, From Plan to Action, and it's really all about how to operationalize a national technology strategy. And what I like about Director Burns's recommendations is it really makes the case very strongly for why the Department of Commerce needs broader authorities, more resources to do its work. Because what Director Burns actually articulated is very much the mission of the Department of Commerce. And if you look at the responsibilities that they have, for example, with export controls under the Bureau of uh, Industry and Security, the amount of knowledge that you need, the analysis that you need in order to make informed decisions on how to execute export controls, how to identify national security risks in matters of commerce. It's the type of information and analysis that the new mission center at CIA could very well produce. And and that's part of the reason why I was advocating that actually some of that work probably isn't the best place, uh, or CIA isn't the best place for a lot of this work. I Mm -hmm. actually think a lot of that should be at the Department of Commerce because it's a more natural fit for their overall mission. To be fair, the Department of Commerce does not have a large intelligence component. Are, Are you suggesting that it might be worth the investment for the Department of Commerce to to have an expanded intelligence component and perhaps even be included, like many other agencies and departments' intelligence components, uh, be included in the formal U.S. intelligence community? Yeah, that is absolutely what I recommend happens. If you if you look at Commerce's mission and again this the nature of this strategic competition that we and we need to rethink of certain aspects of our government. And the Department of Commerce is very much front and center of this now. What I would love to see is that commerce become an official member of the intelligence community and that it has the resources to set up the type of mission center that the CIA has right now. And I think it would make a lot of sense to have a good chunk of that new technology and transnational issues mission center actually fall under the Department of Commerce instead. I think that would be a more effective approach and it would allow the CIA to focus more on the national security issues that it's best positioned to have its contributions to and have commerce take the lead on some of these other issues. You know, the Department of Commerce has access to information that is extremely valuable for the types of insights that are needed. So how's it there? Be worth uh, some more investigation, for example. Could you have that new transnational uh, mission center be dual-hatted in the sense that it could fall under CIA and commerce? Hmm. That's one option worth exploring. Yeah, there are parallels for that with some joint efforts ranging from the counterterrorist center back in the day to some of the counterintelligence efforts crossing, for example, CIA and FBI and having them find ways to cooperate. So let's put all this together, Martin, from from the, the beginning to now, everything we've talked about regarding the U.S. intelligence community writ large, but more specifically the CIA with these new initiatives. If we had this conversation in four or five years from now, 
Where do you think things will be based on these initiatives? Do you, do you see them evolving more as, well, it's going to look a lot like the CIA and the way it's always done things with just a slight shuffling. So there's a little more technology focus, or do you think this is the beginning of something a little more dramatic that, that this shows a turning of the ship, if you will, and we might see some more innovative and creative ways of attacking these technology issues within the intelligence space. No, I think we're on the cusp of of something more dramatic, right? Because you have broad bipartisan consensus that this strategic competition with China is of fundamental importance. And there's just a lot of alignment between Democrats and Republicans in the Congress on this front. The Biden administration is very much in agreement with this assessment and is putting forward its own initiatives on this front. And so when you have this broader consensus like this taking shape, and I think the growing realization that the status quo just isn't going to cut it, that's when you start seeing major changes. And right now we're in the opening stages of what that fundamental shift will look like. If you look back over history, you know the United States, it usually takes a while to rise to the occasion. But when it does, it's quite dramatic and very impactful. And I think we're at the early stages of seeing that happen once again, where the United States is really starting to position itself for what could be a decades-long competition with China. And so, yeah, I think if we look back you know, five years from now, we'll have seen some pretty astounding shifts in how, how the U.S. government is addressing these issues, but also how the U.S. government is engaging with private industry on these matters, as well as how it's engaging with allies and partners. Mm -hmm. Across the board, we're seeing some very interesting new initiatives popping up, and these will serve as the testing ground for new ways of approaching very difficult problems, but ones that are imminently solvable as long as we make sure that we make sound decisions and have the strategic vision to provide that framework, right? Ultimately, we have to decide, well, 30 years from now, where do we want to be? How do we make that happen? These decisions, these discussions are starting to to take place now. And yeah, I would love to to check in with you in five years and see how, how far we've come and what still needs to happen then. What a great wrap to put on this. Martin, thanks for joining us. David, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please rate the podcast and share the podcast, either in the social media of your choice or in person if you're doing that kind of thing. This episode is produced by Jen Howell. Ian Enright was our audio engineer. Sophia Yan performed our music. And don't forget, you can become a material supporter of Lawfare by joining us on our Patreon page. As always, thanks for listening.